Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. As far as mammals, really a lot of fisher, which is really cool to see. I'm not sure I've ever seen a fisher off of a trail camera, <laughs> given their behavior, but um, pretty neat to watch them dig into the, to the gut pile. Um, a lot of flying squirrels, which is pretty cool to see too. Um, coyotes, foxes, kind of kind of the things you would, if you would think of a scavenger, you would, you would think of. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 162, an awful research project. Now, today, I am talking with Dr. Ellen Candler. Ellen received her PhD in conservation science, wildlife ecology, and management from the University of Minnesota, and is currently a postdoctoral researcher. She grew up in Idaho camping, hiking, rafting, hunting, and fishing, which led to a love of the outdoors. During the conversation, Dr. Candler lets us in on a unique project she is running, the Awful Wildlife Watching Project. She's going to talk about the origin of the project, some of the animals and behaviors noticed, and how a hunter impacts wildlife after a successful hunt. This episode ends with how you can help the project by participating in some citizen science. Whether you are a DIY weekend warrior or a professional electrician, you need quality tools and supplies to get the job done. And there's no better place to get what you need than Allegheny Valley Windlectric in Brackenridge, PA. With an extensive stock of Milwaukee tools and quarterly deals, they have the tools you are looking for. Right now, during their summer savings on tools event, mention a Conservation Unfiltered podcast in store for 5% Milwaukee tool savings. Don't forget to say hi to Cam when you stop in. All right, everyone, welcome back. And, uh, awesome guest uh from the wonderful state of of minnesota that i have driven through but not actually um i guess technically i visited there i got out to get gas and some coffee but um not uh actually like visited and and tourist type stuff um but dr ellen candler uh dr ellen how are you (laughs) i'm great thanks for having me jason um i so we were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording, and um, I won't be bashful about this. I am stealing this podcast episode idea, and you as the guest uh, from Nick Pinizzato and the NDA's Coffee and Deer podcast. I listened to that episode. I heard what you had to say, um, and I thought, man, that that is awesome information um and i think the project that we're going to be talking about is a great project it's something that i'm i'm interested in so i wanted to talk to you firsthand uh so can you just explain to everyone uh what your project is that you're working on research in minnesota yeah thanks uh 
the project that I'm researching is called Awful Wildlife Watching. Um, and we're interested in better understanding the scavenger communities that are visiting hunter-provided gut piles um, right after hunters harvest their deer, gut their deer, um, and then place a camera on the gut pile. Uh, what scavengers are coming in to actually use that resource? Um, and Minnesota is really excellent for this research because there are four different major biomes that intersect Minnesota. Um, so there's like the coniferous region up north, if you think Boundary Waters, Voyagers National Park area. Um, there's the prairie region, which is pretty much dominated now by, by farming, but that western Minnesota. And then the deciduous region, um, kind of through the center where the rivers, if you, if you look at a map and see where the major rivers are, that region and, and the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul is within that region. So all of those different habitats, human use are gonna impact uh, what scavengers are present and then how those scavengers are gonna find the, the resource. So that's that's really in a nutshell what we're interested in, interested in what is, what's coming in to use a resource and how does the landscape and habitat affect that. I have to ask this question, which I feel like this is a question that you're going to, that you would get from a lot of people that um, aren't in your field. Like, how did you come up with this like idea? Like, how did, how did you decide, like, this is what I want to research. <laughs> I want to look at thousands, tens of thousands of pictures of scavenging animals on a gut pile of a deer that a hunter shot. Like, how do you get to that point? You're like, that's what I'm going to make my, my life's work right now. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a, and when I talk to people not in the field, you know, I'm in this all the time looking at pictures of, of gut piles of, you know, dead animals. And I'll talk to people about it that are not even in wildlife research or not, you know, necessarily hunters or, or people in the outdoors. They'll say, oh, what do you do for a living? So, oh, I study wildlife that eat dead things, you know, like I <laughs> what? So and how do you get interested in that? Um, well, I grew up in Idaho. I grew up in a family that that hunts and fishes and hikes and rafts um, and all the outdoor stuff we could do. Um, and and watching my dad hunt uh, and and seeing what he left, he would bone out an elk or or leave a gut pile or something. Seeing what he left got me really curious. Uh, there's there's so much out there. Any hunter you ask knows that 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 gut pile is gone so quick. Um, there's a lot that eat it. So it's not, it's not, you know, revolutionary for me to say, oh, things are eating gut piles. Um, but better understanding as a scientist from a scientific perspective, uh, what is really using that resource over a large landscape. Uh, so kind of how I grew up, um, growing up in a hunting family, being introduced to science uh, and, and then getting into more academic and, and science and research is really what got me interested in, in wondering uh, this, this huge resource really that we're putting on the landscapes, uh, landscape as humans, uh, what is that impact that we're having? You know, it, I thought the same thing, right? Like I, I grew up in a hunting family, uh, I'm avid hunter. I've had that question, right? Where it's like, what, something, you know, you shoot a deer, you got it, you know, you go back a week later and it's gone. And it's like, well, something ate it. Like it didn't just vanish. Um, mm -hmm. What is it? You know, what what's coming here? What's it doing? Um, you've taken that to a whole nother level, right? <laughs> um, than I have. Like I've wondered that. Um, I've even put a camera out. But 
uh, to take it to the level you're taking it to, you're really sort of putting nuts and bolts from. So, I mean, like, what are you trying? What's the goal? Like, what's the hypothesis or the the idea of like, like you said, we know that other animals are eating this gut piles. What what good could come from actually having science based research on what animals are visiting gut piles? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, that's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> a lot of really good questions in my mind. I'm like, oh, there's so much to say. Um, so I'll start. We kind of came up with this idea. I had this, you know, question a while ago, you know, what's eating gut piles and, and, you know, I've know a few hunters, I know a lot of hunters that I could say, Hey, if you have a camera, can you put one out? Um, or I have a camera, I can lend one to you, but really to get at the idea, the question that I'm interested in is how does the scavenger community change or shift or what is different across different biomes in Minnesota, which is a huge state. I can't answer that question by myself uh, as a researcher. I, I don't have enough field time to do that. I, you know, to, to understand that I'd have to travel um, forever. Um, and hunting season, of course, is only really, you know, the, the bulk of it's a couple weeks in Minnesota, the firearm season, a few weeks. Um, so I just physically can't, can't do that. So we talked to a few people here uh, and came up with the idea of asking hunters to do it for us. Um, and like you said, you're a hunter and you're really interested and you've been interested in what's coming in. And that's the response we got. We said, well, let's just see if people want to help out. And we put put that out there. If you're a hunter, if you have a camera, can you put a camera at your gut pile right after you harvest your deer? And we got great response. And like you said, a lot of hunters um, are, are really just curious what's coming in. Some said, you know, I, I had that same question and I'm really excited that science is interested in like better understanding this across a larger landscape. Um, so the ability to... Uh, get other people, get hunters to participate in science, be participatory scientists in the process um, is really enabling us to answer questions about what's coming in. Um, and to your other question, what are our hypothesis? Um, like I said, Minnesota is, has, you know, the prairie region, which is dominated by farming now versus, you know, areas that have a lot more forested areas or, or lakes or wetlands. Um, the, uh, the scavenger species and your ability to detect that gut pile is going to shift based on those those habitats. So if it's an open habitat, you know, you harvest a deer, you hunt a deer um, on your, you know, on the edge of your cornfield or something, harvested cornfield, that's pretty much out in the open. Birds are going to be able to see that pretty quick. Like any hunter will say, oh yeah, I've been there. I've, I've been getting my deer or I shot and immediately you hear a crow. Like they, they know what that gunshot means. Um, and they're ready and they, they can see the gut pile and they come in. Whereas in the forested region, the birds might not see it right away. Um, so it might give mammals who detect gut piles or detect, you know, food um, more by scent. It might give them a little more time to detect that. Um, so those are kind of the hypothesis. We're starting to dig into the data a little more and, and looking for patterns. But um, that's kind of what, what, we're, what we're finding and, and thinking. You know, a lot of people, um, they equate the impact of, of hunting and hunters on the animals that are taken, uh, but that impact that hunters have on wildlife goes beyond that, right? Because you shoot a deer, you leave a gut pile in the woods, or 
the edge of a field, you're now providing food for other animals. Um, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Yeah, that's that's a, a interesting question and not one I'm sure I'm not sure that we can completely answer. I think it's good for some and good not good for others. Um, in Minnesota, there is about roughly 500,000 people that purchase tags every year. And I'd say uh, about 200,000 deer, give or take, depending on the year, depending on, you know, winter severity, about 200,000 deer are taken or shot and killed every year. So if we estimate a gut pile is about, think of like 15 pounds, if 15 pounds times 200,000 deer, that's, that's tons of, of food out there, really nutritious food that's available to scavengers. And what's interesting is that this, this hunting season that we've established uh, is pretty new relatively, right? So only in the last hundred years, if you look back in like hunting history and, and when we established wildlife management, when we established in, um, hunting seasons, this, this short time period in fall generally, maybe, you know, mid September to the end of the year, um, but really firearm season in Minnesota, couple weekend, a couple weeks in, in November, is the peak of when that that resource is available to scavengers. And a lot of scavengers you think of, other than birds uh, in Minnesota, I think of, of wolves or coyotes or bobcats or fisher, you know, predators. Um, typically that time of year is kind of their lean time of year, right? Because the deer that they might normally hunt are really healthy from coming off of a, a good summer, hopefully, depending on how the summer went. Um, so, in the absence of hunting seasons that happen in the fall, those predators might not have as good of a chance. And that's not something we can totally answer with everything we're doing, but it's something that I've really thought about um, what's what's different in this research, in this resource versus um, any other dead animal on the landscape. So I think it, it could be really good for some species. Um, and then there's also, of course, um, concerns with other issues with, with um, gut piles. So things like disease or, or contamination transfer to, to scavengers is also a, a, a consideration. So before we get into what I would say is sort of the sexy part of this research of like what kind of animals you're seeing um, and sort of maybe some things that might impact which animals come in. Uh can you just sort of give uh, a brief rundown, like if if a hunter is interested in in helping out in Minnesota, is helping, you know, interested in helping out, um, how do they go about, like, what are the requirements for them to be able to contribute to your project? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we welcome hunters to participate. If you're a deer hunter in Minnesota, um, absolutely. We'd love you to participate. We're funded by uh, the Environment and Natural Resource Trust Fund, which is a constitutionally uh, established fund. Um, and, and that enabled us to purchase cameras this, this year to lend to hunters if they are interested in participating. Um, if you're interested in participating, uh, we really only ask that you reach out to us. We'll give you a short procedure and essentially all we're asking you to do is bring a camera out with you when you're hunting, um, field dress your deer, however you do that normally. If you bring it back to your deer camp and you do it there, great. If you do it in the field, great. Uh, set up a camera. We have 
you know, directions on how to do that if you're um, not familiar and how to do it. We have cameras that are pretty easy to set up. Um, set up a camera, send us a location. Um, we don't ever share that location with anyone. That's only for analysis. Um, and then uh, we ask you to leave it out for one month. And like I mentioned before, gut piles will be gone like in a couple of days in a lot of places, but sometimes they last, sometimes they do last a month or longer depending on whether the snow hits early. So we just to standardize it across, we ask a month. So <clears throat> when hunters are are setting, putting these cameras out, um, are there, like you give them any guidelines on how they should position the camera? Um, obviously like you need to be able to see the gut pile, right? So it needs to be in a spot, but like, is there a height requirement or a distance requirement that you would prefer? Um, or is it really just, I'm just happy if I'm getting some decent pictures? <laughs> we do have um, some suggestions to kind of standardize it to, to um, give a hunter some idea. I've set up a lot of cameras and every time, I won't say every time, I commonly continue to set it too high or not far enough away or it in my head, I think it's looking at what I want it to look at. Um, the cameras we have to lend out have a screen on front. So when you position it, you can actually look um, to see where the camera is pointing to make sure that the gut pile is in the full frame, which is awesome. They're really, really uh, nice to use. Um, typically like two to three feet off the ground. Uh, it depends, you know, what the vegetation is around it, but that's kind of what we would ask. Uh, and then, you know, seven paces away. I, I don't know a lot of hunters that have, you know, their uh, tape measure out there with them. So I'm not asking for an exact uh, distance, but uh, if you can, you know, give you know seven or eight paces away from the camera, that that'll get a lot of a lot of what we're looking for. So this hunter is going to put this camera out. They're going to leave it out for a month. They're going to have a bunch of pictures on an SD card. Um, what are they doing with those pictures to get them to you? Uh, I feel like if if you lent them the camera, right? Like they just send the camera the SD card, like send it all back to you, no problem. Um, but if they already have a trail camera and they don't need you to lend them one, how are they supposed to get the pictures to you? Yep. There are a couple options in the past. We've had, uh, if they email me and say, or email our project and say, I shot a deer. Um, we have a, we have a form to fill out says I shot a deer. Here's where it was. Here's when I shot it. Um, and we will set up a Google folder for them. And it's a private folder, only that hunter and the project can see it. So no one's going to see your location information. No one's going to get any of that information. Um, and then you can upload your pictures there. If you don't want to do that, you can mail us the SD card and we can mail that one back or a different one back. We have plenty to, to swap. Um, so those are, those are the options we have. And those have worked, that's worked pretty well in the future. We're happy to help. Yeah. That, that sounds like it was well thought out. Um, I do like that you mentioned you're not sharing uh, the location of these. I know if there's anything I know about hunters, myself included, uh, we don't really like to share our hunting spots with other people. <laughs> so uh, not sharing that location of where you shot a, a deer, um, that that is definitely something that I'm sure alleviates some anxiety that uh, some hunters may have. Um, so, all right. Let, let's get into the the kind of thing that I am interested in uh, and why I put a camera out just one time uh, to see what came into the gut pile. Um, and let's talk about the animals uh, that we're seeing. 
so you you've mentioned birds, you've mentioned some different mammals. Um, what are what are sort of the the common animals that you would sure. sort of say you see? Yeah, um, I think what you would expect a lot of ravens and crows, uh, a lot of of eagles, bald eagles in particular, um, a few golden eagles every now and then, which is kind of neat. Um, as far as mammals, really a lot of fisher, which is really cool to see. I'm not sure I've ever seen a fisher off of a trail camera, <laughs> given their behavior, but um, pretty neat to watch them dig into the to the gut pile. Um, a lot of flying squirrels, which is pretty cool to see too. Um, coyotes, foxes, kind of kind of the things you would if you think of a scavenger, you would you would think of. Um, one interestingly, and this is just learning like different patterns and different migratory migration behavior of animals that I didn't think about. I, I think of scavengers. The first thing I think about is a vulture, right? They're, um, they're scavengers. That's what they do. Um, but in Minnesota, they are, they have migrated south by the time firearm season starts. So we don't really huh. see that many vultures. In archery, if we have archery gut pile, we see some, but really not that many. Yeah, that's interesting you know that you mentioned the timing um just for me because whenever i decided to do my own little experiment and put that camera out um it was in archery season and literally the only animals that i saw on that camera were turkey vultures that was it um but that's that is a a good i guess sort of next question a little bit of like does the timing of when that deer is harvested uh, when that deer is shot in that gut piles there, does it affect what comes into the gut piles? Yeah. And, and so vultures is a good example. Um, and some of the archery ones we had, um, we get vultures if it's early firearm season or, uh, archery season, we'll get bears, but if it's muzzleloader season late in December, those bears are hibernating. We're not really seeing them. Uh, we, if if somebody hunts again late in December during muzzleloader season, that gut pile, if you're way up north in Minnesota or really anywhere in Minnesota in December, if it, you know, freezes, if it's, you know, gets 10 below and that gut pile freezes and then it it warms up and snows on that gut pile and it's can't be seen by birds, then maybe birds don't get to that gut pile for a long time. And maybe uh, it's uncovered by some wolves before anything else. So uh Weather has a lot to do with it. Uh, cover, habitat cover, be able to, if you can see it from the air, that has a lot to do with what's coming in. Migration of different species, hibernation of different species. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this is something we probably should have covered early in the episode. But when we're talking about these gut piles, we're talking about the intestines, the internal organs, right, from that deer. Um, but not every hunter leaves all the same internal organs. Me personally, um, as long as I have not shot the heart, I always take the heart. That's one of my favorite things to to eat off of a whitetail. Um, and you know, some people take the liver with them. Um, some people take the call fat or the sort of like fat netting that's a, a, around uh, the stomach and the intestines. I've taken that a couple times. So when you have this sort of uh, variance of organs and and material that's there. Do you like ask the hunters what they take um, out of the gut pile or what they leave? And then the second question is, have you been able to sort of notice like any difference 
in species of, of animals that come in, you know, or, or what they choose to eat first or anything like that? We have, we do ask the hunters if they take, um, any organs because yeah, when I, when I hunt, I take the heart, if I haven't shot the heart too, because it's delicious. It's just, it's yes. another. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yep, I'll take that. So we do ask the hunters what they take, um, so that we know what's, what's available or at least know what to kind of pull out. I haven't looked at our data specifically to see if different, if that's made much of a difference, I would think uh, it, it'll be particularly hard with the images to detect um, with certainty across different different um, gut piles what different species are choosing to eat. Having said that, there has been research looking, asking that particular question, and they ranked guts uh, based on high energy and kind of low energy or leftover, if you think of like stomach contents or things like that, kind of low energy uh, what what species are benefiting from that high energy first um, versus low energy based on um, what's available when they come or what they choose. So there has been some of that research, but we haven't dug into that with ours quite yet. Have you have you noticed any specific species that seem to be okay with or um, maybe actively choosing to eat some of the stomach contents? Um, and I guess Part of that might be a little bit sort of site specific, right? If it's closer to ag and there's more corn in that deer's stomach, I feel like there's going to be birds and, and animals that are going to be wanting to eat that corn. Um, so I guess that's my question is, a, I mean, <laughs> do you see certain species that are going after the stomach contents, which in my head is probably going to be corn? Yeah, I, I we that's been a question of mine too, because talking with, with people that look at carcasses or you talk to people that that do carcass analysis or uh, do uh, kill cluster analysis so they go out if a predator is killing and they they find that that dead animal essentially you'll rank it as totally gone completely eaten if just the rumen pile is left or the stomach contents usually you see like in the winter like a frozen block of what looks like hay or or corn depending on where you are uh, and so I think typically people say it's gone. And I've always thought there's, there's gotta be something that is eating that, or that is having some kind of impact. It's the stomachs are, are big. And like you said, particularly if it's a corn fed deer, uh, if it's in ag, uh, or in, in some States where there's, uh, they allow baiting, um, there, that corn is still likely edible to things like rodents or, or birds or things. Um, that is a question I have. I, I haven't looked uh, at that specifically with our data yet, but that's definitely an interest of mine, um, particularly, and it might be something we look at um, outside of, of using remote cameras. So doing something like a small mammal survey around a gut pile location um, later in the gut pile's life, <laughs> um, when that gut pile seemingly gone versus an area where there isn't a gut pile. So trying to compare those two areas might be kind of interesting. So let's get back to the animals. What is the like, when you see a picture, see some of these pictures, like what has most surprised you? Like, is there an animal or two that came in that you're like, huh, I, I don't know that I would have expected to see that. Yeah, uh, there's, there's several that I'm like, wow, that's, huh, that's, 
wouldn't have thought they would eat that. Um, and then you kind of think about it. So for example, woodpeckers, we get a lot of woodpeckers coming in, pileated woodpeckers, hairy, downy, uh, red-breasted woodpeckers come in to, to feed on the gut piles and they're definitely eating it. Uh, but if you think about it, like you get them at your suet feeders and that's just fat. Um, so, okay, that makes sense to get woodpeckers, but that was definitely a surprise. Um, rabbits come in uh, and uh, one other interesting one is, is barred owls that we've seen come in. Um, and of course, barred owls eat meat, right? They eat rodents, but owls hunt by, by sound or, or movement, right? At night, they're, they're looking for those movements or sound. Gut piles don't make sound and they don't move. So uh, how are they, how are they detecting them? How are they feeding on them? Um, one thought we've, we've had, and one is a, it's an example of how involving hunters or participatory science scientists in the process, um, a hunter suggested that the barred owls were actually maybe feeding on the mice and then next feeding on the gut pile. So mice are scavenging, a uh, barred owl comes down, eats the mouse, and then realizes there's a lot of other good stuff to eat there. So uh, that's been that's been pretty interesting as well. Do do you see most of the activity then during the day, or is it a mix a pretty good mix between night and daytime scavenging? Yeah, it's both. Um, birds. I was just looking at some some graphics that I was making with some of the data, some of the preliminary data, uh, and birds activities, um, especially if you exclude owls, is almost strictly like six to six. Um, when it's when it's light outside, birds are active, you know, during the day when they can see the gut pile, when they can detect it that way. Um, and then mammals are kind of throughout the day. If you just like group every mammal together, um, maybe a little more at night, but kind of all across that 24 hour period, but definitely in the morning and at night, things eat that. You've mentioned multiple times now that, that the birds are keying in on these gut piles because of sight. Right. So um, the sort of site selection or the site that that this gut pals in is, is having an impact on what species are there uh, coming in to scavenge. So like what what kind of I don't want to say conclusions, right? Your project's not done, but um, what kind of preliminary findings are you are you seeing with those four different biomes or like, oh, if, if this is where the gut pile is, we can sort of expect to see more of these type of scavengers as opposed to other ones. I'm just starting to get into that. Um, one interesting thing that I'm playing with uh, that uh, I've found surprising is just looking at uh, corvids. And when I say corvids, I'm meaning just crows and ravens. I'm excluding any other corvid in, in this particular uh, analysis. And looking at what their activity patterns are between the prairie region, which again is mostly farming, um, and the coniferous region, uh, and seeing that in the coniferous region, or sorry, in the deciduous region, so that kind of central cut across Minnesota where the Twin Cities are and across, uh, they tend to be active a little more in the morning and less during the day. Um, whereas in the prairie and the coniferous regions, they're active that six to six during the day. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, I don't know if that's habitat driven or if that's 
um, driven by the metro area in some way. I don't know, but it's it's something interesting that I'm kind of looking at. There's a difference in activity there. And then I'm going to go out on a limb here and do a big assumption, make a big assumption that um, you're going to see more wolves on a gut pile in the northern part of Minnesota than down by the Twin Cities, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's uh, not to say that wolves aren't coming down here every now and then or coming south, but yeah, the wolf range, as they define it, is is. Uh, a little farther north, maybe if you drive like an hour and a half hour north of the Twin Cities is kind of the closest um, where the wolves would typically be. Um, again, wolves could kind of come down, but yeah, typically they're they're more up in the northern part of Minnesota. Have you seen any uh, animals sort of fighting or duking it out over the gut pile? And if so, who won? <laughs> <laughs> Um, typically the fights I notice are mostly between the birds, uh, and those are the ones that come to mind are, uh, bald eagles, uh, typically a, a mature bald eagle and a juvenile. And they're, they're pretty cool to get some good still images. You know, they're, you know, put their feet together and they're, they're kind of fighting each other. Typically the, the mature one dominates, uh, eagles and and ravens or crows or smaller birds, of course, those kind of compete every now and then. Uh, eagles definitely win that, or the larger bird, golden eagles or or red-tailed hawk, typically win. But of course, the crows you see them kind of pick at something on the side. They can they can pull something out, uh, even if a, a larger bird of prey is there. Have you seen like um, any mammals, you know, kick out? another mammal or a bird or anything like that like i'm and i know it, it's hard to say for sure because these are still images it's not like mm -hmm. a, a one month long video that you're watching where you could really see the dynamic playing out but you know can can you sort of look at you know two or three images and sort of be like i have a feeling that you know um i don't know you know a coyote was on here and then in very quick succession a a, a wolf was on it you know, and, and might have dr driven out that coyote. Yeah, I will say that we have every, we do have some video. Um, we haven't analyzed that yet. The stills are a little easier to analyze. Uh, we have seen, I've definitely gone through and seen like opossums and raccoons together. And every now and then, like you'll see them in the same picture or series of pictures for a while. And then they get closer and closer. And then they'll like, you'll see them like, hackle up and get mad um i'm guessing the raccoon wins there but <laughs> um, there is a way what you're saying you know if if you kind of can anticipate a competition based on what's coming in or or what was there and then what comes in next there is a, a an analysis we could do um that i would like to do called a time to event analysis and it, it was um, evolved from from the medical field a uh, time to a time to death analysis, essentially. So, um, looking at diseases or medications or, or or things like that, how what factors lead up to that point. Um, so, using remote camera images, we can kind of do that and say uh, time to event. If we define event as wolf presence, what factors lead up to that? Or um, time to event coyotes, you know, something like that. We can kind of determine. If these events occur, 
when does this other event occur? Or if a wolf was here, how long does it take for a coyote to come back? Stuff like that. You mentioned uh, analyzing the pictures. Um, that means looking at them, right? And then like <laughs> taking notes and like, you know, making you know, making sure you have the information you need from from that picture. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of pictures that have a whole lot of nothing, right? Um, tree branch blown in the wind is, you know, with false stuff. Um, how many pictures have you analyzed? And then you're, I, are you doing that yourself? Or you've mentioned the team, right? So like how many people yeah. are on the team that are, that are doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we have over 230,000 images right now. Um, yeah, they're definitely blanks. Uh, we actually have, let's see, on our team, on the Off Wildlife Washing team, uh, myself, um, Grace, uh, Joseph, and Amy. And Amy is part of University Extension, so she works um, with the University Extension and helps us, you know, uh, expand the project, get this information out to the public. Uh, talks to us about how how to best do that. Joseph is my uh, Joseph Bump. Dr. Joseph Bump's my PhD advisor and now my postdoc advisor as well um, helps with that. And Grace has been essential to help get the, the word out to people. Um, but essentially it's been me alone for um, a few years. Um, I've looked at some of the pictures, but really the bulk of, of the analysis is on Zooniverse. So if you're familiar with the Zooniverse platform, it's an awesome platform to get participatory scientists involved in science or art or literature, whatever it is you want people to help you identify or um, look over. There's so many projects, no matter if you're interested in wildlife or space or literature, or art or something, there's something on Zooniverse. Um, but we have a project on there if you're interested. Just go to Zooniverse, search awful. We're the only project that that has the word awful, O-F-F-A-L. Um, and people on there can identify what's in our pictures. So we ask them to say if there's snow or not, um, what species they're seeing, how many they're seeing and any behavior that they see. Um, and anybody in the world that has internet access can get on and, and help us identify those. That That's really cool. That um, makes it a lot more accessible uh you know the 230,000 images you know that's that's a lot to go through no matter how many people you have on your team right but if you can uh, make virtually the entire world right internet using world part of your team that helps cut down the amount of time necessary to go through and and um sort of categorize all those different images yeah yep so okay um once again, uh, for just sort of everyone's knowledge that's listening, um, if you're a hunter in Minnesota and you are interested in participating, um, how can they take part in this research project? Yep. If you're a hunter and you're interested, get in touch with us. Um, our email is awful, O-F-F-A-L, at umn.edu. It's the University of Minnesota's um, email uh, we also have a few social media accounts. If you prefer to get in touch with us that way, we can definitely, if that's easier, have at it. Um, we have a Twitter and Instagram and a Facebook, uh, all awful watch. Facebook is no space, uh, Twitter and Instagram. There's a underscore between awful and watch. Um, follow us. We'll, we'll send some 
good pictures your way or we'll get you information. Um, yeah, get in touch with us. We'll get you a camera if you would love to borrow one. Um, we can answer any other questions, your concerns that you might have about the project as well. Yeah, and I'll have links down in the episode notes so that you can uh, just click and uh, email or follow on social media to make that uh, easier for everyone uh, to to just be able, if you're driving and you can't write it down, uh, when you're at the next red light, you can just click link and it will make it a little bit, little bit easier there. Um, is there anything else, anything that I missed? Um, what, what else about this project? Like, where do you, I guess, where do you see it going next? Yeah, I would, ideally, I would love to see this expand um, across the U.S. There are so many different species. Right now in Minnesota, we're talking just about white-tailed deer, which is the um, main ungulate species that's hunted in the state. There's a little bit of elk hunting in the Northwest, um, a little bit of moose hunting in, in some tribal lands. Um, but otherwise it's all white-tailed deer, um, the occasional mule deer if one wanders in. Um, but there, there's been uh, people that have looked at elk gut piles just um, just a little bit. And I would love to see this kind of research expand across the U.S., across different ungulate species, different scavenger communities, different predator assemblages, um, habitat types. Um, if people are interested in, in helping run one, uh, I can, you know, get people started. Uh, I, our, our team is not equipped to handle everything in the U.S., but um, I would love to see this project kind of take off that way. That would be my my kind of dream for it. It's better understanding how how hunters are are provisioning scavengers across across the U.S. and North America in general. Yeah, that would be really cool um, to be able to see, you know, like in Pennsylvania where I'm at right? Like what, you know, we have, we don't have wolves, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, what scavengers, you know, are, are going after uh, those gut pals. And then, you know, for me personally, you know, elk, you mentioned elk and moose and to see those, how that changes, right? Um, obviously mm -hmm. an elk or a moose is going to have a, a bigger gut pile than, than a white-tailed deer um, or, or even a mule deer. Uh, so, you know, how does that change um, how long it takes to be consumed yeah. and um because it takes longer does that mean that there's more species that that get a chance to scavenge or and that you know th these are these are the questions i have and i'm not even uh, i'm not even you i'm not even going this <laughs> deep um so yeah i think that would be awesome um i'm i, I might have to pressure penn state into uh maybe <laughs> expanding for for us talking to you so you um go. <laughs> but Dr. Kaler, thank for thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, this is interesting, and I, I'm very interested to see like what your research sort of delves out in, in all this, just because it's fascinating to me. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me on. I love talking about it. And that'll do it for another episode. I want to thank you for listening. And I want to thank Dr. Candler for coming on to talk about this. Um, you know, I don't know another hunter out there who hasn't done their own sort of citizen science when it comes to, uh, you know, the successful harvest and, and what comes in, you know, to uh, a gut pile. 
you know, I've done it. Um, you know, a couple other members of my family have done it. My friends have done it. Uh, it's cool, right, to see, um, you know, what animals come in. And I think really when you look at this kind of project and what she's been able to see, I think it really hits home uh, when you couple it with what, you know, the North American non-lead partnership, the work that they've been doing, what uh, Cornell has been doing with their work researching uh, lead bullet fragments and, and lead poisoning in raptors and scavenging birds. Um, if we sort of, you know, if, we're, if we sort of pull all this research into the same boat, we can start to see the impact that we are having after a successful hunt, right? And that's the negative one uh, in my mind is, you know, the, the lead that's left on the landscape and those little fragments. But the positive, uh, I'm guessing positive here is that, you know, you're providing some nourishment uh, to animals in that area, right? Uh, that are able to, that maybe, you know, might be struggling at that time of the year, you know? Uh, so there's some good, there's some bad out there. It's just cool to sort of see this, you know, and, um, you know, be able to be able to participate in that citizen science. Make sure uh, you check out uh, Zooniverse. I have a link down in the episode notes. Check it out. It's really cool that you can sort of see all these different pictures. Um, even, you know, if you're not able to identify uh, an animal or someone else has already identified an animal, like just even looking at the pictures is really cool. So I highly suggest checking out Zooniverse. Uh, and if you are interested in helping out with this project, definitely talk to Dr. Candler, reach out to her and uh, let her know that you, you want to help out. And uh, I, she will be very happy to hear that there's another person trying to help out in this project. Until next time, next episode, make sure that you, especially here in the fall with the beautiful leaf colors, get outside, take someone with you, and of course, stay wild. Just like you, I've been on a search for ways to tell the world I'm passionate about the outdoors. Things like a beautifully designed sticker, a well-fitting hat, or a comfortable shirt, all while working to help the outdoor community. Well, I think I finally found a company who checks all the boxes. Wild Rooted is an eco-conscious, family-owned company with a wide range of products, from stickers to shirts printed with algae ink, and hat patches, key fob holders, and keychains made with a plant-based leather alternative called Miram. They have an inspirationally designed product for you. Not only that, but 10% of all profits are donated to our wonderful national parks and forests. It doesn't get any better than that. Head over to wildrooted.com and use CU Free Ship 23 at checkout to get your gear. That's CU F R E E. S-H-I-P-2-3 at wildrooted.com.